we definitely have had a very slow and steady growth. We haven't had any sort of like viral moment that skyrocketed us. You know, we haven't been on Shark Tank or Oprah's favorite things list or anything like that. It's really been this slow build, which I'm super grateful for, but it's also not super sexy. Like I think entrepreneurship on social media has this rap that it's, you know, or this reputation that it's just like this sexy, glamorous, lucrative thing. And it's actually like zero of the above. <laughs> Hey there, and welcome back to the show. If you're new here, welcome. I am your host, Rachel Todd, the girl who will be asking all of the questions, but more importantly, the person getting inspired by my guests who have accomplished a lot to get to where they are. You Might Be a Badass is a space where we sit back, kick off our shoes, and dig into the weeds of countless personal success stories. Don't let the might in the show's title fool you. Every person you will hear from is without a single doubt a badass. I speak with entrepreneurs, nine to fivers, stay at home moms, athletes, and basically everyone in between. My goal here is to discover the different depths in which we define what it means to be successful. Success means something different to every person. And ultimately, if you're pursuing your passions and living life to the fullest, you too just might be a badass. Today, I am joined by someone that inspires me so much, Allie Bonner. Allie is the CEO and co-founder of Queen, spelled K-W-E-E-N, which, aside from several delicious adjectives, is the world's first spreadable granola. We sit down and talk all things granola butter, including some in-depth business and entrepreneurial tips that you definitely won't want to miss. Allie also opens up about her past eating disorders and shares her inspiring journey to recovery and how she developed a healthy relationship with food and her body. And if you're loving this podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave a rating and review to help make future badass episodes like this one possible. Hi, Allie. Thanks for joining me today. Hello, so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. So for those listeners out there who don't know who you are, would you mind go ahead and giving us an introduction of who you are? Definitely, yeah. So hello, everyone. I'm Allie. Um, I am now based in Philly. I was in San Diego um, for basically my entire life, so total California girl, and now I'm a transplant to the East Coast, um, which I'm super excited about. But a little about me. Um, so I sort of have this corner of the internet where I talk about, you know, body image, food, um, as I struggled with, you know, food in my body for over a decade, um, really the majority of my young adult life. And then, you know, also have a food business that I'm, you know, working really hard at growing. Um, so also kind of talk about the entrepreneur and business side of things. Um, and I like to, you know, make a point of mentioning that I'm not a professional at any, you know, I'm not like a marketing guru or anything like that, but, um, I like to take people along cause I'm just sort of, you know, grinding and, and on the journey myself. So, um, you know, if you're interested in kind of behind the scenes of startup life, but from someone who's really in it, <laughs> um, who's really kind of just hustling, then that's sort of my, my page. But, um, yeah, I'm super excited to be here, you know, happy to talk about business, body image, any, anything like that. Um, and then, oh yeah, I moved to Philly cause our business, um, we make everything in house. And so we needed a larger uh, facility in manufacturing space. Um, and California was just insane, as you probably could imagine. And you know, yeah. living in LA. Um, so we sort of were just open to anywhere. We were going to go, you know, I really wanted to move to Austin because I've heard just incredible things about Austin. Um, we were looking at Denver, Boulder. There's Those are some little food hubs. Um, and we kept getting drawn back to Philly. So there was just, you know, a ton of facility options, um, out here. And we were like, you know what, let's just do it. Like Philly's an awesome city. So we're living here now. It's been a huge change. I mean, they had a, a ginormous snowstorm this year. So, um, that was, you know, eye opening, but super fun, but yeah, excited to be here and chat, you know, all the things. Huge shift, by the way, you, you make it sound so casual, but San Diego to Philadelphia is like quite the day and night difference. Um, when, when did you move out and like, how are you, how are you adjusting to that? Yeah. I mean, huge. <laughs> I would say like the <laughs> biggest, I would say the only probably bigger change would be like, I'm trying to think of like Boston or Maine, which is just like farther. Um, but no, it's been a huge, I mean, even culturally, you know, the people here are very different. Um, but it's been really fun. Like I, you know, I was 
born, actually I was born in Japan, which is random, but um, grew up in San Diego and, you know, lived most of my life in California. I was in San Francisco for like a short stint um, for college and a few years after, but always been a California girl. And I think I just always really wanted to, you know, I mean, as you know, California is such a bubble, like you can stay there. I've, I would argue for the rest of your life. A lot of my, a lot of people do, um, which is fine. But for me, you know, I always wanted to try out New York or, um, you know, the East coast for a little bit. And so it's honestly, I was nervous for myself just because I am, so, um, you know, my mood is very directly tied to the weather and which mm-hmm. of course is like a big deal out here. Cause things are, you know, they have seasons, which is a huge thing that I had never experienced growing up in California. Um, and my boyfriend's mom is actually from Philly and she was like, they live in Santa Barbara now, but she was calling me like multiple times a week being like, okay, like, you know, just so you know, like she was trying to prep me and she was like, I don't know if you're going to be okay. Um, and then I moved here in February. And so it was like, you know, huge snowstorm when we landed. Um, but honestly, I think part of my like naivete around being here and just, you know, experiencing snow for pretty much the first time, you know, the only other times I've really seen snow was like, if I went up to Tahoe to go skiing or something, um, I think that really contributed to sort of the novelty and excitement and like magic around it. So it's been really fun. Um, I mean, spring, I'm looking out the window right now and it's like kind of gray, but we've had some, you know, really, really gorgeous spring days. So I think it's, you know, warmer weather is on the horizon. Um, and it did help that I moved here in February. So it was like the end of winter, you know? Yeah. 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 So I think the real test will be next year when it's like, I get the full brunt of it. Um, but so far so good. (laughs) But you'll, you'll get to see the leaves change, which is not a thing here. And if it makes you feel any better, it's like fully gloomy out here as well. So okay, you're not you're not missing much. <laughs> totally. Yeah. That's that's a good point. Yeah. I know. It's almost like that beach, uh, you know, overcast getting sucked yep. in there. So that makes me feel better. <laughs> um, real quick pivot. You said that you happen to be born in Japan. Yeah. Can can I ask why? Because I have a very similar story about myself. Oh, really? Yeah. So my mom was a Navy dentist. So I was born on a Navy base there. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's amazing. In Yokosuka. But it was, I mean, we were only there. I barely mention it to people because we were only there till I was like three maybe. So I don't, number one, I don't remember anything. Number two, like the only, yeah, the only proof that I was even there was like from photos because to me, I'm like, I don't remember being there. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Were you also born there? Um, well, so I was born in France, but my parents were working there. Same thing. They were working on, um, Disneyland Paris at the time to like open it. Oh, cool. And so I was, I was only there for like nine months of my life. So it's like, it's one of those things where like, you know, it's just something to hang your hat on, but like you didn't actually live there. Right. Totally. Yeah. It's like always, always my two truths and a lie or, you know, like always my fun fact. And then people are like, are you a Japanese citizen? I'm like, no, (laughs) they're not dumb like that. That's the the first question I always get. Do you have dual citizenship? I'm like, no, I don't. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Um, well back, back to you. Um, so one of the things that I always like love talking about it, cause it's, I mean, it's so obvious and I feel like people don't talk about it enough is like the evolution of, you know, social media and Instagram, right? Like it was such a different place, uh, five years ago, eight years ago, even 10 years ago when some of us were like first starting on the platform. Right. Um, so I kind of just want to talk about that like evolution for you. Um, I, I definitely don't, you know, we don't need to get too detailed here, but just kind of like the the journey for you of like where you kind of started in this space and, and if you felt like you had some larger intention or purpose on the platform and, and kind of where you got to, to building yourself up on, on social media. Yeah, no, that's an awesome question. I mean, God, the landscape has changed so much even from when I started my account, which wasn't that long ago. I mean, it was probably four years ago now. Um, and even before, I feel like the four years before I started it, you know, Instagram was sort of just getting started and things have, you know, had already changed a ton, but I mean, no, when I started, it was not, I think the biggest difference between when I started my account to people who are sort of, you know, trying to, you know, get into the wellness space or becoming an influencer or whatever was now people know that there's money in it. People know that, you know, it can be a full-time job. Um, and at the time I was sort of just, 
you know, excited to get some free Siete chips. You know, I was like, if I get some free product out of it, like I will be excited. Um, but it wasn't even about getting, you know, free stuff. It was like, I really wanted a medium and a platform to document my, um, my eating disorder recovery. And even before then, you know, before I sort of realized, and I guess for people who don't know, kind of stepping back a second, like, you know, I really struggled with orthorexia and an obsession with eating perfectly clean all the time. So, you know, there's tons of different, um, you know, types of disordered eating. For me, I was like very um, obsessive about like my the ingredients and, you know, um, just, you know, the organic, like how clean, quote unquote, clean my food was. Um, and so naturally with mm-hmm. that, you know, it was a level of mental restriction around food and I wasn't really allowing myself to enjoy what I was eating. Um, and so, you know, with that often goes a level of obsession, obviously about what you're eating. And so I kind of felt like, you know, before I started really trying to heal my relationship with food, Instagram was just a place where I could, you know, obsess about my food in sort of a socially acceptable way, if that makes sense. So, you know, I used to be obsessed with like reading all these different food blogs and all these decadent, you know, dessert recipes because I would never allow myself to eat them. So I remember like in high school, just scrolling these food blogs and looking at these like, you know, really over the top desserts um, to sort of satisfy mentally this, you know, craving and, and, you know, urge that I had for, unhealthy food because I wouldn't let myself have it. Um, and so when I started to create my own account, it really just fed into that, you know, obsession and that desire. Um, so it sort of started actually from like a very mentally unhealthy place and then, you know, sort of became my diary and my journal. And as I'm navigating, you know, my relationship with food and figuring out, Oh, you know, what I'm doing is actually not healthy. Um, it's very disordered because at the time, you know, I was a nutrition student in college. I felt like what I was doing was, you know, what you're supposed to do to be healthy. I equated healthy with skinny. I equated, you know, all of these things, um, restriction with, you know, having quote unquote willpower. Um, so I sort of spun all of these negative, um, you know, yeah, mindsets around food into just me being a healthy person. So that was like, you know, I think the biggest difference, how I really grew my account was, um, you know, for better or for worse, because I was so obsessed with food, I was really consistent (laughs) about posting and sharing on social media. So I posted, I remember every single day for the first two years, which is crazy. Like now, you know, I try to be consistent. Obviously I try not to go, you know, more than a few days and try and, you know, put out really valuable content for people, but I'm not like socio about it. Like I was waking up before, you know, I was working full-time in tech, would wake up at the crack of dawn to, you know, shoot whatever I had made the night before. And then I would post it right at 6am. And like, it was just a very, um, you know, rigid structure, which I think also at the time, you know, a few years ago, it was so much easier to grow in the beginning. Like I shot up to 10,000 followers like that, just from sort of having, you know, beautiful imagery and posting consistently. Um, but I think now, you know, really what's changed and what I appreciate about the platform is people are so thirsty, especially with COVID so thirsty for, you know, the real, real, right? Like, and not like the cliche version of like, oh, I'm being vulnerable. It's like, I want to see, and that's why stories are so cool to me. Like I love, I don't even really scroll my feed anymore. I just watch people's stories. Um, just because it's like, I want to see what you're doing. Like, I want to see you doing laundry. I want to see you in your sweatpants. Um, and people are craving that. Um, so anyways, yeah, that's sort of, I think my, you know, journey with social media and, you know, now it's really just evolves. Like I mentioned with, you know, the business side of things, as I healed my relationship with food and my body, I became less obsessed with it. And I stopped, you know, I just, it just wasn't interesting to me anymore. Like I'm always going to be a foodie. I'm always going to love good food and I still love sharing recipes, but I have so many other dimensions and facets of my life that, you know, really light me up. And I feel like, you know, I can bring to the table. Um, so I think my page now is a lot just more multidimensional and, you know, it's more, more me. It's less like, this healthified version of myself that I thought people wanted to see. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I related to so many of the things that you just said. Um, and so I think that's one of the many, pe- many reasons why people do follow you is your like your rawness and your ability to speak to some of those like inner feelings that people 
are afraid to say out loud or even like think to themselves, right? Like if you would, if you admit that you're in this unhealthy space with your relationship with food or the way that you go about your quote unquote diet, right? Like, um, it becomes real and it becomes scary. So, um, yeah, like so many of that was like, I was just like nodding along, like, yep, yep, yep. Been there, been there, been there. And, and I think a lot of people have, and that's, and that's the thing is like, you have to kind of get to this place of addressing it and then, and then figuring out how to navigate from there, which I recognize is like so much easier said than done, right? Like it's, there's, there's no way that you're going to be able to take, um, you know, read an article or listen to a podcast or take a therapy session and then, you know, magically snap your fingers and everything will be fine. It's kind of like a daily effort, right? Like each day is going to be unique. And, um, I mean, to that, uh, if, you know, for me, there was a point in my life where like, if I would quote unquote, like miss up with my diet of something that I was supposed to eat for the day, then the whole day was shot, right? Like, oh, might as well just give in, right? Like I've, I've already wasted the entire day. And so by that point, then you get so deep into this like kind of tunnel of, you know, obsessive eating. And then you're just thinking about it all night. You don't have good sleep. And then you wake up the next day and you have so much regret. And then, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's this whole, it's this whole tumble effect. Um, Totally. Yeah. And I mean, I think the biggest reason why, you know, I started healing my relationship with food, you know, it was so scary. And I I think you raised such a good point of like, it's so much easier said than done. I think you can, you know, follow all these body positive accounts on Instagram. You can surround yourself with, you know, people in your life who, you know, aren't superficial, who don't talk about, you know, oh, I just want to lose 10 pounds. But at the end of the day, like it's still freaking hard to make that mental shift, especially if that's the way you've been thinking for a really long time. Um, and so I think for me, you know, it really was just, you know, a a practice and that's what I really want to emphasize to people is, you know, it's still a journey. Like there are still times I remember when COVID first hit and like, I felt all of these old patterns reemerging because everything else in my life was out of control. And I found myself of course, turning back to food, which is the one thing that oftentimes you know, we feel like we can control. Um, But what I wanted to say in the beginning was, you know, my reason for healing my relationship with food, my why, what I always came back to was just what you said. I didn't want to be thinking about food all the time. Like I wanted to be so present in my life. I was in my twenties. I was like, you know, just watching my life pass me by because, you know, I'm at a restaurant with girlfriends and all I can think about is, you know, what's the healthiest thing on the menu? How much are they eating? Like, I shouldn't have eaten that piece of bread, you know? And it's like, I'm not present in the conversation. I'm not making memories with my friends. And then I go home and I don't even feel satisfied by what I ate. So then I binged on stuff in my pantry. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was just this cycle. And then the next day I'm like, oh, I'll get back on the wagon. I'll eat super clean. And it's just all consuming and it's just no way to live. Um, And so I'm like, you know, happy to talk about that as well. But I just wanted to acknowledge you for bringing that up because yeah, it is just, you know, it's easier said than done. And, but it is so worth it. Like once you get to that place where you're just, you know, present and chill around food and it's not occupying your headspace 24 seven. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely still like, I by no means am, am completely cured of all of my habits. You know, I think that that would be kind of a, a perfect world that, that I, I'm, I'm personally still working on, but, mm-hmm. um, to your point, it's kind of like this, um, I think because it's such a culture for a lot of people to talk about like weight and outer appearance, you know, like I've had, I've had close friends or coworkers that will, you know, mention what their weight is, right? Like, oh my God, I'm, I'm the biggest I've, I've ever been. I'm, I'm X weight, you know? Mm-hmm. And then it starts to put into this comparison standpoint of like, oh, well, if they feel like they're overweight and I'm easily 20 pounds more than them, like, what does that mean? Or, Mm -hmm. um, like you said, going to the restaurant with your friends or like eating with your girlfriends and you want to make sure that you're eating what they're eating because they're a lot thinner than you, or you want to stop eating the amount on your plate because they've stopped eating. So that means that, you know, if you're restricting to the amount that they're restricting, then you'll, you'll be in a better place. So, it's so multi-layered and multi-dimensional and it and I think you're right it's 
it's more just like habitual and like taking things on. I I actually don't even know if that's if that's the right way to go about it, taking things on like one piece at a time. But I think that that might be kind of a starting point of each individual scenario. You don't have to obsess over it, right? It's it's if I know that this food is going to fuel me, then who cares? If I'm going to be happy eating a cookie, then great. I'm not going to eat 10 of them later after I've told myself that I can't have them, right? So mm-hmm. um, I think it's kind of like all of these micro little decisions that level up into kind of the larger picture, even if it is a day-by-day practice. I think that that's probably like the best way to address or or start it, you know? Totally. I think, I mean, for a long time, like what you mentioned with the cookie is so brilliant. It's like, you know, what do you like? What do you enjoy eating? And I think that's often overlooked when – you know, we're trying to find the best diet or eat, you know, the most optimally for our health or whatever we're, you know, goal we're chasing. Like for a long time, I always just, you know, going back to the restaurant example, I would always just be like, okay, I'm going to get a salad, you know, or I'll get the grilled fish or whatever was like the healthiest in my mind. And I'd never stop to think like, what sounds good? You know, what, what do I like? Do I even like kale salads? You know? And it was like, sometimes, but not every time I go out to eat. And so it really was, you know, my decision-making was always coming from a place of fear and a place of, um, you know, external, you know, what, what other people told me that my body needed rather than kind of tapping inward and being like, but what do I enjoy? What am I craving? You know, sometimes during the summer, it's hot outside, a nice crispy salad, sounds amazing. Um, other times it doesn't. Other times I want something more grounding. I want a burger. I want you know, whatever I want, you know, fries, I want something that's like more, um, you know, heavier and indulgent. And it's just like, you have to tap in and listen to your body, but again, easier said than done. And that is such a process. And I think for me, it was even just starting to rebuild that relationship slowly with my body, because for a long time, like I didn't trust my body and my body did not trust me, you know? Um, so it's like slowly sort of building that. And I think, the number one way to start doing that is if you can work with a professional. Um, I know everyone's situation is so different, but that's something that I always, you know, really advocate for just because I'm not, you know, I'm not a therapist. I'm not a eating disorder specialist. I'm just sharing my story. But, um, you know, it was really helpful for me to work with someone who that is their job and they're trained and they know how to help you sort of, you know, get back to that place. Because, you know, Instagram can be helpful with who you follow and and sort of, you know, creating a safe space while you're healing your relationship with food, but I don't think it's ever a substitute for, you know, professional help. Yeah, no, completely agree. Um, and what's kind of sad is that it, it spans to, you know, all ages of our life, right? So the earlier that you can kind of nip that in the bud, like the better, you know, my, my mom called me yesterday and she was, really upset. She'll probably be listening to this. Hi, mom. <laughs> um, she was really upset about <laughs> a, a food decision that she made yesterday. And so she kind of like called to vent to me about it. And, you know, like I, I could only help her so much and say like, you know, that's okay. As long as, you know, you recognize it or the next time, you know, that you want to make a better decision, you know, but like, don't beat yourself up over it. It didn't ruin your entire day. And you were, you know, you did what you needed to do in order to fuel your body for the time. It's better than not eating at all, you know? So, um, to that, I, I would say like the, the sooner that you can start to try the better, otherwise, you know, it, it doesn't go away. Um, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. I love that. I love that you, you know, also gave your mom sort of a safe space to just to, to share that and vent. And, you know, it's also a huge piece too, is like, the mother-daughter relationship with, you know, how does your mom's relationship with food affect, you know, your own? And that was something that really motivated me because, you know, growing up, my mom actually had a great relationship with food, um, but she always would make sort of little comments of like, oh, my stomach looks so fat in this or just sort of offhanded things. But to me, I was like, you look, you're my mom. You're like the, you know, this like angel, you know, magic Mm -hmm. human that can do no wrong. Like if you're talking badly about yourself, then, you know, I guess that's just sort of what I, what all women do with their bodies. So it's sort of, you know, and it's again, nothing against like, she was an awesome mom, but I think, 
just being so aware of how, you know, your words can impact other people. And it doesn't even have to be the mother-daughter dynamic. It could be friends, like you mentioned, or coworkers. Um, and so I think that was a huge motivating factor for me too, of like, when I have kids, you know, especially daughters, like I want to have a bulletproof, amazing, you know, intuitive relationship with food and model that for them. Um, and so I think when you have a why that's sort of like bigger than yourself too, it's much more powerful, um, than just like, oh, you know, I just want to heal my own relationship with food. So that was something too, that I just thought of when you're talking about that. Cause it's, yeah, it, I mean, it's influential, like who, you know, you surround yourself with. You, you couldn't be more right. I, I remember a story of, um, a friend of mine, her mom used to say to her when she was a kid, if you eat your zucchini, you'll look good in your bikini. Mm. And, you know, she's in her thirties now. And she repli- like, she says that out loud to say like, that was a really like fucked up thing for my mom right. to tell me. Right. It's like that ingrained in your, in your brain of like, if you eat this, then you will look what's socially acceptable in a bikini. And that's totally. so like, that's so wrong. You know, it's, it's rather than eating based on what's going to bring you, you know, happiness and nourishment, it became more of an outer thing. Um, so I think that's so right on and it's, it's, you know, it sticks with us obviously decades later. Definitely. Yeah, no, that's huge. So I know that we could probably talk about this particular subject for a very long time, but I do want to pivot into more of the business side of things for you um, and talk about, I, I feel like I'm saying it correctly, but it's it's Queen and Co, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Okay. Okay. Um, can you give us like the the one-line pitch of, of what that is for people who might be unaware or living under a rock? <laughs> Yeah, I'm happy to. Um, Yeah, so we, so for anyone who doesn't know, our product is called granola butter, essentially, um, which I know is like such a strange idea. Um, And it's never been done before. So if you're confused, you're not alone. Um, But we, you know, started, or basically the reason that I created granola butter was out of my eating disorder recovery. Um, So I started adding a lot of, you know, foods back into my diet that I had restricted heavily for years. Um, so nuts and nut butters, you know, being some of them super delicious foods. I'm not allergic to them, but my gut was just such a wreck, you know, from years of binging and restricting. Um, and so as I started to add in, you know, almond butter and peanut butter onto everything, I just couldn't digest it. Like I, it was, I felt so weighed down. I felt sluggish, um, just because they're really, you know, dense, dense foods. And so my nutritionist at the time that I was working with, you know, mentioned maybe you should try some nut-free spreads. You know, there's like some sunflower butter and stuff out there and you might have a better time digesting those, you know, just as we're working with your, you know, healing your gut and kind of getting you back up to a good place. And I, I mean, not to trash those foods, but like they did not resonate with me. Like the seed butters, you know, I thought were super bitter. I remember trying, you know, soy nut butter. And like, I was just like, this is trash. You know, I miss my (laughs) almond butter, like take me back to the nuts. Um, and then I remember trying Trader Joe's cookie butter. Cause there was like, you know, the whole cookie butter trend, which delicious. Right. But then I was like, I'm also not feeling good because like, you know, not the healthiest in terms of ingredients. So much sugar. Yeah. Yeah. So then I was like, okay, there has to be some sort of middle ground. I'm like, I want to create a product that tastes like cookie butter, but makes me feel the way that almond butter does, you know? Um, well, not at the time because it was hurting my stomach, but you know, um, with healthier ingredients. And so, you know, started to play around with the idea of making a spread made out of oats and was just like, why is no one doing this? This is crazy. And I was like Googling it on my phone, you know, oat butter, nothing came up. Um, and then, you know, so I started doing some experimenting in my kitchen. I was living in San Francisco at the time and my roommates thought I was crazy. I was like buying Trader Joe's granola, blending it in my Vitamix with some coconut oil. Um, cause I figured out pretty quickly that raw oats made into a butter is like nasty, um, you know, to put it lightly. And so I was like, oh, maybe toasting it. And then I thought of the idea of granola butter. Um, so I'm buying Trader Joe's granola. It's like chalky and disgusting. I'm like giving them samples and they're just like, you know, totally humoring me being like, it's not bad, you know, as they're like choking down water cause they can't breathe. Um, and I was like, okay, this is not like, I could not pay someone to buy this. Um, 
or to eat this. So my boyfriend, who is now my co-founder, um, you know, him and I are both working in tech at the time and he is like the entrepreneurial one. I'm sort of more of like the dreamer, you know, the ideator, someone who kind of has these big dreams, but then when it comes like time to execute them, I'm just like, I glaze over. I'm like, cannot be bothered to file for, you know, an RLLC or whatever. Um, and he's the one that's very like, you know, logistics, um, you know, kind of more detail oriented. So we make a really good pair and, and he's also very entrepreneurial. Um, and so he was like, you have to do this. Like no one's done a granola butter before. Like we have to at least give it a go. And so we started working on it nights and weekends. We were getting nowhere with this recipe. Like we were, it was just, I mean, batch after batch, it was turning out terrible. And so Eric and I both love food, but we have no experience in, you know, culinary, like we didn't have any, you know, classic culinary skills. Um, so we're sort of like racking our brains and we're like, who can we, you know, hire or contract to help us like fine tune this recipe. And we actually happened to be speaking of France. We happened to be in Paris at the time on vacation. And he was like, Oh my gosh, I went to summer camp with this guy who's actually out here right now, Ari, who's like helping open a restaurant. And he was like, he worked at Michelin star restaurants. He's classically trained as a chef. Like he could totally help us with this. So we meet Ari for drinks and I was kind of nervous because you know how there's like that animosity between, you know, the wellness industry and like the fine dining industry. Like I felt like Mm. Ari was very much just like add butter to it and it'll taste better where I was like in my disordered, like, you know, like trying to find gluten-free options in Paris, which is don't do it. Um, And (laughs) so I was so nervous to like present this idea to him. I thought he would laugh in my face. Um, You know, he's like this big guy, like you know, chain smoking cigarettes, drinking all the time. And I was like, okay. So then I bring it up to him. We're like, you know, a little liquored up. And so I got got some liquid courage and I like tell him this idea. He loves it. He sees the vision immediately. He's like, you know, very kind of disillusioned by his life in Paris and is ready to kind of move back to the U S. Um, so kind of the stars are aligning for us at this point. So we decide to bring Ari on as our third co-founder. Um, and so at this point, it's, you know, me, Eric, and Ari, we all sort of serve different roles in the business, but we still worked on it as a side hustle for, you know, the next year because, you know, I was nervous to leave my full-time job and start this, you know, where was I going to make money? Like, and my parents were like, wait, you went to Berkeley to start, all of a sudden start selling granola? Like, what's wrong with you? Um, you're, you're leaving your like cushy tech job? Like, are you okay? Um, For granola. <laughs> right, exactly. And so I'm like, you know, at this point where I'm like, I have this huge vision. I see the white space, um, you know, and at this point we had kind of learned – a lot of the schools are nut-free. So a lot of parents are kind of looking for a nut-free spread um, that tastes good because, you know, as I mentioned before, the other options out there, they just weren't cutting it. You know, for me and for a lot of other people, they just weren't resonating. Um, And, you know, kids are super picky. So if I didn't like this, you know, sunflower seed butter, kids definitely didn't either. Um, And so we found this huge market, you know, as well as just creating a novel product and a new spread, there was also, we were filling a huge customer need. And that's something, you know, if anyone's listening and they're thinking, I really want to start my own thing, you know, yes, it's exciting to create something that's never been done before, but I actually wouldn't recommend that as like your guiding light. And the reason that you start a company, you should always be thinking about, you know, what need am I filling for the customer? Um, like what white space is there? You know, is there something else on the market that, you know, is doing a better job? Is there something, some way I can improve for an existing product? Like always kind of thinking in that mindset because, you know, yes, it's exciting to be like, oh, no one's ever done a granola butter before. But with that also comes a ton of challenges because you have to educate people on what it is. You know, people aren't, people are like humans are creatures of habit. Like they're used to their GIF and their Skippy peanut butter. And, you know, it's hard for them to sort of convert (laughs) to, the church of granola butter. So, um, you know, that was also like a big hurdle for us, but we, so we worked on it for about a year, nights and weekends, um, ended up getting into whole foods and press juicery were like our two first big accounts. Um, and then, you know, really decided we're not doing either job. Well, like I wasn't doing my tech job. Well, I wasn't doing granola butter. Well. Um, and so we sort of had to make a decision and it was really one of those like sink or swim moments. It was, so terrifying. I mean, I'm sweating a little just thinking about it um, and reliving that decision to, because it's like, you know, you have this consistent steady paycheck and all of a sudden 
you really put all of your eggs in that basket and you're like, I'm, I guess I'm doing this where it wasn't this little side project anymore. It was like, oh, I need to figure out a way to pay my rent and, you know, pay my bills. So that was really scary, but it also was just a huge kick in the pants that I think we all needed because we were kind of, you know, it's easy when something's a side hustle, you don't devote a thousand percent of your time to it um, until you're like, I need to pay rent this month. Like, how am I going to make that mm-hmm. happen? <laughs> so mm-hmm. um, yeah, that was like a little synopsis about us. And then um, the move to Philly, yeah, as I mentioned, was just prompted by, you know, needing more facility space. So we never had this, like, another thing I want to mention is like, you know, oftentimes you only hear about these like viral people, you know, people who go viral or like these companies that seemingly pop up overnight. Oftentimes those companies are, you know, 10 years in the making and then suddenly like an overnight success. And we definitely have had like a very slow and steady growth. Um, We haven't had any sort of like viral moment that skyrocketed us. You know, we haven't been on Shark Tank or, you know, Oprah's favorite things list or anything like that. It's really been this slow build, um, which I'm super grateful for, but it's also not super sexy. Like I think entrepreneurship on social media has this rap that it's, you know, or this reputation that it's just like this sexy, glamorous, lucrative thing. And it's actually like zero of the above. (laughs) Um, It's super fulfilling and rewarding, but it's like the least sexy thing I've ever done. (laughs) So yeah, that's like a little TLDR, um, tried to keep it short, but that's kind of our founding, founding story. No, no. I, I love that you bring up the, the lack of sexiness. Cause that is like one of my focal points on, you know, in doing this podcast is like a lot of what you think, you know, about entrepreneurship is like this glamorous life of like, you've got money, you've got time to do whatever you want. You drive a really awesome car. You don't have a, you know, a boss that you have to look up to. And while yes, maybe at one point in your career or at at the trajectory of this business, like that might be the case, like the few first several years, first several months, like you are like, like you said, like you're sweating, right? Like you are doing everything that you can just to survive in order to make sure that like this baby, this passion project that you love so much is, you know, standing on its own two feet at some point. Um, so I'm, I'm really glad that you said that because I love talking about those details and understanding that that's, you know, it's going to take people a really long time to get to the place where they think is, you know, the sexiness of the entrepreneur life. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, I mean, what you really have to ask yourself too is like, am I starting a company just to put entrepreneur in my Tinder bio, you know, like, what is your why? Like, I think a lot of people are like, oh, it sounds so glamorous to be an entrepreneur or like to be a CEO of a company. And like, you know, I just, I don't want to be like too much of a Debbie downer, (laughs) but like, it is the hardest thing you will ever, ever do, you know? And it's like, I look back sometimes with a little bit of, you know, regret, um, not like actual regret, but I'm like, oh, my life in tech was so cushy and nice. Like I got off work at five and I didn't actually think about work after that. (laughs) You know, we're like, now it's like, okay, you know, I'm, when I'm at the facility all day, like I get home and that's when I'm like, okay, finally, you know, I'm home. No one is, is talking to me. Like I can now focus on starting my work for the night. Um, but again, it's like, it's so fulfilling. Like I, you also have to be real with yourself. You know, I loved my job in tech, but I couldn't imagine myself still being there and feeling fulfilled. Like, especially now after I've been working for myself and kind of building my own thing, um, you know, it's just, it's again, so fulfilling because you're working towards your own dream. You're not working for someone else. You're not building someone else's dream. Um, so yeah, I think it's just, you know, getting, again, getting real with yourself and not sort of blindly following like what you're seeing on social media. Totally. Totally. So going back to the, like the inception phase And, you know, it obviously took a little bit for you to get to a point where you made the decision to go full time. Um, What were some of those like initial starting steps that you needed to take in order to actually become a business? Um, You know, like, did you need to um, like financial financials and where you got, you know, some backing from renting a kitchen, like things like that? How did you how did you go from zero to 
60. <laughs> yeah, totally. No, that's a great question. Cause I think for a lot of people, and I get this a lot, you know, people in my DMs are emailing me being like, okay, I have an idea, or maybe they don't even have an idea, but they're like, I know I want to start something. But I think the biggest hurdle is like, okay, but how do I, where do I even begin? Right? Like it's mm-hmm. not even, st- it's not even step one. It's like step zero. Like what do I do to get to step one? Um, and I think a lot of people are even embarrassed to ask that because it's like, you know, you see all these business gurus on Instagram and they're telling you, you know, about SEO and all these sort of complex things. And you're like, okay, but how do I start? (laughs) Um, and for me, that was definitely the case. You know, I was a science major. I was pre-med in college. I was not business savvy at all. Um, I barely knew how to, you know, do my own laundry. So, um, (laughs) for me, I I was very sheltered when I was growing up. Um, so for me, you know, it was really, yeah, it was tricky. It was like where I have this idea, you know, but I know nothing about the food industry. Like, where do I begin? So number one, I mean, Google is going to be your best friend. Like you have to get so scrappy and you have to not be afraid to ask those questions. So, you know, I was asking everyone in my life. I knew that had a food company. I was like, can I buy you coffee? Can I, you know, send you samples? Can I get your feedback? Like you have to become this, um, just pit bull is the only way I can describe it. You know, you have to just ask and you know, all they can say is no. Right. Like, and if they say no, then you're just back at the same place you started. So I sort of really leaned into that mindset. Um, in terms of funding, we actually bootstrapped our business for the first, we just, closed our first round of funding in December. Um, so for the first three years, really two and a half years, we were bootstrapped, which just means self-funded. Um, and I totally understand that that is not, um, you know, available for everyone. There's so many, but there's so many different ways to, you know, start a company. Like for us, we weren't rolling in the dough. Like, yes, we were working in tech, but you know, Eric and I pretty much just collected our savings from that um, to start this business. But it was like, you know, we'd only been out of college for a couple years. We're living in San Francisco. So we're making, you know, decent salary, but we also had rent that was like (laughs) insane. Um, and I was like getting drinks every night. Like I was young and I was like not saving my money really. Um, so, you know, you don't have to have like a ton of money, I would say to, to start. It's more, you know, just dependent on the industry and sort of like what you're trying to start. Um, but there are, you know, small business loans, especially if you're female founded or a minority founder, um, definitely look into those and grants. Um, or you can kind of go the other route, which a lot of my friends have done, you know, um, where, you know, they just even pre-launch, they raise a bunch of capital either from, you know, investors, VCs, private equity, um, friends and family, you can do sort of like a, a seed round, they call it where you get, you know, high net worth individuals like angel investors. Um, you know, maybe it's former food founders if you're trying to go into the food industry. Um, and that's what we did. So for our round, you know, we really wanted to operate lean and spend as little money as possible in the beginning. Um, really just like a pure startup mentality, you know, scrappy, like do it all ourselves. So, um, you know, when we first started, we were making everything ourselves. We still are, but we were just working out of a shared commissary kitchen. So it's like a pay by the hour sort of shared space. Um, and if you're looking to do a food company, that's a really great place to start because you don't have these high fixed costs, you know, every month where you have like, you know, 10 K a month in rent and you're like, well, I'm only doing 200 a month in sales. <laughs> um, yeah, so yeah. it was really nice because it was pay by the hour, you know, and at the beginning, your sales are going to be super volatile. Like you're not going to have this really steady, um, you're not going to be able to forecast your sales basically because you're just getting started. So yeah, trying to find some, you know, more scrappy ways. And then, you know, we slowly, again, incrementally, you know, as we began to grow, like suddenly we grew out of that space and we got to the place where we were actually busting at the seams there. Like I remember we were storing, um, we were storing stuff at two of the different like uh, shared uh, commissary kitchens. One was in San Marcos. We were in San Diego at the time. One was in San Marcos and one was in Vista. So they're for people who don't know, it's like random cities, but they were 30 minutes apart. And I remember like in the same day, we would have to drive, you know, multiple times back and forth to like bake the granola and then, you know, blend it at a different facility. Like we were just busting at the seams. It was insane. Um, but you have to kind of get to that point and then be like, okay, you know, clearly we're outgrowing this place. Like we need to get to the next step. So then our next step was, you know, we shared a facility with just one other company. Um, and we were there for a year. And then the next step was this facility, you know, this Philly 
facility where now, you know, we have 12,000 square feet and it's our own facility, but you know, that was another stepping stone. So I think for people, you know, who don't know where to start with the financial piece, if you're a founder that isn't financially savvy, numbers aren't your thing, I totally get it. Like that's also myself. I'm much more, you know, creative, um, marketing sales, <laughs> branding brain. Um, and Eric is like our numbers savant, you know, he is like the Excel spreadsheet guru. Um, and so not, you know, of course I have kind of forced myself to at least learn the basics. Cause I think it's important as a founder to just be aware of like the bare minimum. Um, but if that's, you know, if you're a solo founder and that's not you, you know, maybe, either find a co-founder or contract someone who can kind of be your bookkeeper, um, who can be your, you know, controller accountant. Um, just because I think that is just such a crucial part of any business. So those are some tips. Um, and then I would say, you know, something else is really invest in therapy. I know it's unconventional. It's not, you know, usually like a startup founder tip, but something that I've done since the beginning is, I see a therapist every other week and it's huge because this is going to be, you know, you really have to treat yourself like an athlete, really like, you know, this is going to be the toughest thing you've ever done. Like treat it like you're training for the Olympics. I'm not even kidding. Like take care of your body, take care of your mind, you know, make sure you recover um, and just surround yourself with a really good network of people that believe in you, support you in your personal life because that makes a huge difference as well. Yeah, I love I love the therapy tip. Um, I feel like if you don't address everything that's going on in your brain, which is going to be probably a shit show for a little while, like you're probably not going to be in the best mental place to actually, you know, make a business run. So that's actually a really great tip that you're right. I I don't think that a lot of people are are suggesting, but probably um, makes the world of difference. Mm-hmm. I, I'm I'm curious to know. So you have several flavors at this point, and I love that you. I love hearing the stories of like we're making our own stuff, right? Like that's, that's so cool to me of like, you, yes, you're so successful at this point and you're bursting at the seams, but also like you're in the weeds. You're like actually like baking and making and doing all these things. Um, what, how many, how many flavors do you have right now? Yeah. So we have, let's see, we have four skews right now. So we have, you know, we started with our original, um, and then we brought on chocolate and then vanilla. So sort of those are like our core, um, skews is what people call it in the food industry, but it's like, you know, products or flavors. Um, we recently launched a cookie dough, which was like our March seasonal flavor. Um, we have a blueberry as well. And then we sort of do like different pop-up flavors. So, you know, for fall, we always do pumpkin spice. People are obsessed with pumpkin spice, you know, the basic bitches out there, um, myself (laughs) included. And, um, so that's always like a really popular one. You know, we did like a gingerbread for the holidays last year, apple pie for Thanksgiving. So I think the benefits to making, you know, your own product in house, which is really cool is, you know, you're able to sort of do these quick little pop-up flavors here and there where a lot of times, you know, if you work with a co-packer as a lot of food companies do, which basically means someone else is making your product for you, um, their minimums are really high. So if you were, you know, to say, oh, we wanted to do a pumpkin spice flavor, then they would be like, okay, we'll make you, you know, a hundred thousand jars. And it's like, I'm not going to sell a hundred thousand jars in a month. Um, you know, bigger companies obviously will, but for a small company, I think, if you can keep your manufacturing in-house, you know, of course there's so many challenges to that as well, but the pros are like, you have full control over your product. You can, you know, pivot, tweak anything at the drop of a hat. So yeah, I think like the flavor, um, piece for us has been really, really, you know, it's been very beneficial that we make everything in-house. Um, but we're always kind of, you know, experimenting with new ideas and new flavors. And so Ari, you know, who's my third co-founder is like our culinary genius. And it's just so fun. Like my favorite part of my job is cause I'm just such a foodie is like him and I will just start riffing on like, what if we did this? What if we did that? And then he's showing me all these different like fruit powders that he found and, you know, different ways and superfoods and like things we can incorporate. And then we're testing it and we're playing with it. Um, like that's my favorite part of the job. Um, definitely not the finance piece, I'm just kidding. but, um, yeah, but so that's kind of, and then the manufacturing side, you know, again, it was a huge learning curve for us. Like none of us aside from Ari had ever worked in a, you know, a professional kitchen before. Um, and so, but Ari himself, you know, had never done like a food 
pro- CPG product, or, you know, um, we learned all about like the QA and food safety side of things, um, you know, which isn't always fun, but very necessary. Um, so it's been, you know, I think just the biggest thing is like, we're always learning and it keeps every day exciting, but it's also just like, sometimes I'm like, man, like I can't wait till I'm at the point where I just, you know, have all the answers <laughs> where I'm like, not trying to wrap like frantically Google you know, how to figure shit out because there's just always another fire every day. Um, but it's never boring. I will tell you that much. It is never Mm -hmm. like, there's never a dull moment. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you have a, do you have a favorite flavor to date? Yeah. Yes. So I, I mean, I've always been like a fun fetty, like vanilla girl. So our vanilla flavor to me is just heaven. It tastes like I don't know if you remember those Nilla wafers, but it kind of tastes like Nilla wafers, like sugar cookies. Like that one is just chef's kiss. Um, But then also apple pie. We launched that last fall. I think we're probably going to bring it back this year because it's just insane. Um, Like it actually, I can't even explain to you how much it actually tastes like apple pie. It's wild. Um, So that one's really good too. But the vanilla is just so versatile. Like you can throw it on anything and it just will be amazing. I couldn't get my hands on the granola butter one, or I'm sorry, on the um, cookie dough one because it sold out so quickly. And so I need to go back in there because I'm dying to try it. And like everybody is just raving about it. So yes. Yes. So I don't know when this is going to be live, but we're launching the second drop on May 4th. Um, Mm. We had some ingredient delays, so that's why it took a little bit. But yeah, so stay tuned for that because it's coming back. (laughs) Okay. Good to know. Good to know. Um, you, you talk about, you know, like the quality and, and kind of what you're sourcing for everything. How do you, how do you kind of like pick and choose the ingredients for your products? I I would imagine that maybe RE is kind of spearheading some of that, but like what matters to you guys most in terms of like the quality of what you guys are putting into the ingredient list? Yeah, absolutely. So for us, you know, we really focus on, um, yeah. And like you mentioned, Ari is, you know, doing most of like the sourcing, but as a team, we just, all of our values, you know, align. Um, and we're always looking for number one, the highest quality ingredients. So it has to be organic. Our product is, you know, USDA certified organic. Um, and I think for a lot of people, you know, who are on different diets, maybe it be paleo, maybe it be keto, you know, vegan, like you can't please everyone. And so I think we, um, we really just want to get back to basics and, you know, not get caught up in the trends, whether it be, you know, keto or whatever. Um, but more so just getting back to basics and, you know, whole organic, you know, high quality ingredients, um, and just simplicity. Like I think a lot of times, it's more exciting and sexy to like get super complicated. Um, but if you look at our ingredient list, it's surprisingly simple. And I think people, when they see it are like, Oh wow, you know, I can't believe it tastes that good. And it's actually just a few ingredients that I probably have in my pantry. Um, so that's number one for us. And then number two, I think, you know, our mission has always been just to, you know, make indulgence and, you know, healthy eating and high quality ingredients go hand in hand. Like I think healthy eating, especially with my history of, you know, restriction and disordered eating has always felt very, you know, punitive and, um, and just rigid. And it sort of just sucked all of the life and all of the fun out of eating. And so really, you know, my goal, especially on social and with like all of our branding and messaging is just to remind people like, yo, food is supposed to be fun. Food is supposed to be, you know, enjoyed. It's pleasurable. It's a way to connect with people. Um, and so like, I want people to try granola butter and number one, be like, this is freaking delicious, you know? Um, and then secondly, just be like, oh, and it's a nice bonus that the ingredients make my body feel good too. You know, I don't want them to choose our product because it's quote unquote healthy or because, you know, it's low in sugar. Like I want them to choose it because it makes them happy and it tastes really good. Mm, I love that. I love that. Yeah. It, it brings the joy back to eating for sure. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about um, your marketing strategy a little bit um, and what you prioritize in order to, you know, kind of advertise and kind of get the word word out there. Yeah, definitely. So in terms of marketing, you know, we, again, have always used sort of a bootstrapped 
startup approach. Um, and I think the biggest thing is, you know, social media is so huge for us. So um, we really want people to feel like they're part of the journey. And a lot of them have been with us since day one. And even people who are just, you know, randomly finding us today and they're like, what is this granola butter? Like we want them to immediately feel like they are behind the scenes in, you know, in the action. I almost want them to feel like they're working for queen, you know, like they are in the action, like making it with us. Um, and I was just so sick of, you know, seeing brands on social media and following them and feeling like I was just getting sold to like day after day. And I think all of us are just like, you know, enough with the ads. Like we all just get constantly sold to from every which way. And so I really wanted to take a different approach, um, to social media as a brand and really kind of channeling more of like putting my influencer hat on, um, and almost treating our brand account as an influencer account. So, you know, sometimes I'll be like, I, I try to go on a lunch, you know, a walk after like a 10 minute walk after lunch every day, because my steps are just dismal. You know, I sit on my ass all day (laughs) at work. Um, and so I, you know, share that a lot on our business account. And like the other day, you know, I linked my, the shoes that I was wearing, you know, on Amazon. I was like, you guys, if you're working from home, you have to, you know, you have to get these. So it's like treating it almost like an influencer account on, you know, as a brand page and always trying to provide the most amount of value as I can for people. Um, because honestly, I kind of feel like, you know, if you're a brand, why does someone want to follow you? Like, I think you really have to be objective and, you know, step out of yourself because if it's your own company, you're going to be like, we're the best as you should. But, you know, really taking a step back and being like, if I was someone just, you know, cruising Instagram found us, why would I follow me? And so we always try to provide either value through, you know, fun recipe videos, or, um, we just started doing a vlog. So we're going to launch that tomorrow. Um, cause we brought someone on, you know, on our marketing team, who's just like a video wizard. Um, she's, you know, Gen Z a few years younger than me. So she just like has her shit together and, um, <laughs> she's going to do like our, all of our vlog content, which will be really fun. Um, but yeah, I would say, you know, back to your question with marketing, like, Social plays a huge role for us just because we really focus on storytelling and community building through there um, and less so about, you know, converting people or pushing products um, because I think the more people feel connected to, you know, you and not only you as a founder, but you as an organization and as a brand, you know, the more willing they're going to be to buy from you, to purchase from you, support you, um, because they want to feel like they're part of that community. And so, you know, we've found that we don't have the biggest social media following, you know, in the world, we don't have millions of followers. Um, but we have a super, super engaged, loyal community that, you know, helps us make decisions with flavors, um, products. We were considering changing our, our product name from granola butter to oat butter, um, recently. And, you know, we surveyed our audience and it was overwhelmed. We got thousands and thousands of survey responses, um, which I have never before seen, you know, working at past companies. It was like, we had to pay people to respond to surveys and people are very passionate in our community about their granola butter, which I am so grateful for. And so they were like, no, like you cannot change the name, blah, blah, blah. You know, the, the response was just violently no. Um, which to us was just like, awesome. Like this is, you know, confirms our, you know, kind of what we were suspecting already, but just like, you know, stuff like that, like turning to your community because they're the ones who, you know, put you on the map. Like they're the ones who are consuming and purchasing your product. Um, and I think a lot of brands get lost, get lost with that because they're just so focused on the number, you know, especially if you have investors kind of breathing down your neck and pushing for, you know, sales and stuff, it can be easy to kind of go for those quick wins where you're just trying to convert people. Um, but I think we're taking more because we were bootstrapped for so long, we're taking that sort of slower, um, slower growing, you know, approach. Um, so yeah. And then eventually, you know, as we obviously get more funding, I would love to explore some, you know, different things that would be really fun, especially as the world starts to open up again. Like I'm a huge, um, I love connecting with people in person, sort of offline marketing. Um, so like events and, you know, other kind of fun guerrilla marketing things, um, which just aren't possible for us at the time. So trying to bring as much life and connection to the online space as we can, but, um, you know, it's not perfect. I love like 
the in-person connection too. Totally. That's such a game changer. Um, Like the emotional connection, like you said, with a brand makes all the difference. And I think a lot of companies, um, large and small, you know, kind of forget that piece because they're so focused on the numbers. They're so focused on like, okay, if we're going to be spending X amount of dollars on our advertising strategy, I, I work in advertising as my, as my nine to five. Um, but that's what so many people are focused on is like, you know, your return on ad spend. So I'm putting X amount into the marketplace. So I need to gain X times two back in terms of, you know, my revenue dollars. But that's kind of the missing link is like, people are more invested in you or when people are more invested in you, that's when they're more likely to actually engage, transact, et cetera. Um, you know, I, I see so many kind of like influencers or people who are just starting up who use such salesy messaging of like, get yours now, buy today. And it's like, that's, if that works for you, great. But I think it's such a stronger connection when you're having more of a, a communication strategy or a, a dialogue with people. Like you said, you know, that's so amazing that so many people were able to kind of reach out to you and connect with the information that you guys were trying to seek. Cause that just means that you guys have such a strong base, um, with people. And, um, yeah, that's, that's really awesome. I have a million more questions, but I want to be mindful of time. Um, so we can maybe pivot into the final like little section here, unless you wanted to wrap up with something else you were just about to say and I cut you off. <laughs> okay. Let's do a quick rapid fire really quickly. Coffee or tea? Tea. And I love Earl Grey. I love making my own like London fog latte. So Earl Grey is my jam. Mm, that sounds good. Um, favorite food? Baby back ribs. <laughs> Yum. Wow. Okay. Um, how do you prepare your eggs? Ooh, I love a slow, um, soft scramble. So like low and slow, kind of like jammy, delicious. Yep. Yep. Um, best thing you've ever eaten? Oi, um, oh my God, it's so hard. Oh, I mean, so many things. Um, um, sorry, I know this is rap- <laughs> rapid fire. I'm like, so many things. I, when I was in Paris, speaking of Paris, I had the most insane, um, the most insane, what is it? Uh, what is it called? Their dish, duck confit, duck confit. That was it. I, could, I blacked out. I can't even remember the name. It was so insane. Um, just any food in Paris, like that whole trip. I just, I came back to the U S and I was just, you know, consistently disappointed with everything here after that. Of course. Yeah. Our, our food is trash. Yeah. Um, most underrated condiment. Ooh, underrated. Um, I would say like a, a miso, a good miso Mm. paste is very underrated. It can change. Like I do a miso, one part miso, one part honey, one part oil. And then that's like an insane glaze for salmon or any kind of fish. Wow. I feel like you and I need to go grab a bite to eat one of these days. (laughs) (laughs) Um, sorry, sorry. Okay. Um, something that everybody loves that you don't. Hmm. (laughs) You know, that's a tough one. I'm not a big, um, I don't know. I'm not a big like popcorn fan, which is ironic because I literally just posted popcorn on my, um, on my feed today on Instagram. (laughs) I did like a chocolate (laughs) granola butter, like popcorn recipe, which is good. I just feel like some people are always snacking on popcorn. I don't know. Maybe it's just like my friends and family, but I don't know. I've never been like obsessed with popcorn. It's just kind of a random thing where I'm like, eh, take it or leave it. Okay. Um, is a hot dog a sandwich? Oh goodness. No, definitely not. Okay. And do you have a favorite restaurant near you? Yes. Uh, Philly has such good food. Um, I just went to Soraya. So if you're in the Philly area, Soraya is insane. It's Lebanese food. Um, it was that was one of the best meals actually I've ever had too, and that was very recently. So okay, I have a final question. It's not rapid fire, so you can take some time with it. Um, and I recognize it's kind of like one of those like sky's the limit questions, but I always ask it on here because 
Um, one of my goals is to kind of break down the barriers of what the term success means for people. Um, personally, I felt like growing up, it was always like told to me that success meant X, you know, you hit, you hit a point of being successful in your life when you own a house or when, you know, it was more materialistic Mm. to me. Um, so I would love to know what your personal definition is of success. Mm, Such a good question. Uh, I mean, I feel like I'm successful right now. I just don't, I just need to recognize it. And I think personal definition of success means not, you know, a dollar amount. It doesn't mean how many stores you're in, you know, it doesn't mean that you've been able to buy a house. Like you said, um, like I actually feel like I'm successful right now because I wake up every day excited to make a difference and excited and, you know, lit up and electric about what I'm doing. Um, and I think I need to, you know, as I'm just talking, I'm realizing this, like, that is success, like feeling fulfilled in your day to day. Um, and I'm making less money than I've ever made in my life. (laughs) Just being real. Um, you know, I'm fine. I didn't take a salary for the first, you know, I just started taking salary after three years. Um, and I'm taking a minimum wage salary just to kind of like make ends meet, but I feel more fulfilled and more, you know, lit up than I ever have. But at the same time, it's so hard to, you know, to live in the moment and, and recognize that. Like, I think I'm always sort of like, okay, but onto the next, onto the next, or like, I don't, you know, I'm like, oh, I'm not successful. Like we're not successful yet. We're still like so small. We're still growing. You know, once we get into target, once we get into Walmart, like whatever. Mm -hmm. And it's always like this hamster wheel, um, which I think is so common for so many people. Cause it's like, okay, you know, once I buy a house and then you buy a house and it's like, once I have the baby, once, you know, all of these things. And so I think success is being able to, appreciate where you are and where, you know, and like, you can still recognize, like I have goals and I can still reach them and I have, you know, a long way to go, but also just being content with what you've achieved and sort of acknowledging and appreciating that is something, um, that I need to work on. But I think that probably would be my personal definition of success. I love that so much. Um, though, particularly the word that you said, content, for me is a new frame of mind that I'm like starting to get into. Um, and like you said, um, I think a lot of people are so focused. I actually saw something recently that was this exact topic of you're so focused on the next step or the next thing that you're supposed to be doing that you forget to realize that where you are currently today is what you dreamed about or what you thought about years prior, you know, in high school, in college, Mm. you thought about the life that you're living now. So recognize that of you've made it to that place. And so it's okay to be content with where you are. Um, I really love that. Yeah. That's, that's, um, Mm, that's so beautiful. Okay. Before we wrap up, can you tell us where we can find you, social media, website, et cetera? Definitely. Yeah. Um, I love this conversation. Thank you so much again for having me. Um, so you can find me, our website is just queen.co. So it's actually K-W-E-E-N.co. Um, and then Instagram is just my name. So Allie Bonner. And then our uh, business Instagram is queen and co um, is our handle. So, and you can find us if you're on the East coast or the West coast, we're at whole foods. Um, otherwise Amazon, you know, Amazon is everywhere. So that's what I always direct people to. (laughs) Very true. Very true. Well, thank you so much, Ali. I really appreciate your time. It was really, really good to connect with you and get to know a lot more about you. Um, so really appreciate your time and thank you so much for being here. Yeah. Thanks so much. This is so fun. 